I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with another episode recorded live in the Living Kitchen studio. Scott Utterstrom, principal at Extend Architecture in Los Angeles, was born in Portland, Oregon, graduated with a BA in architecture from Cal Poly, and spent a year in Copenhagen studying architecture. Could be better than that. He got his master's in architecture from UCLA, and as mentioned, since 2007, has been uh, with X10 Architecture, working with previous Convo by Design guest X10 uh, President Monica Hafelfinger. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Those who have been subscribing and listening for a while now know I only speak with guests whose work I admire. I started the podcast because I'm a huge fan of design and architecture. So it would be odd for me to talk with a guest whose work doesn't move me. This being said, I spoke with Monica and Scott at different times because while the firm appears clear and clearly comfortable in its direction, both Monica and Scott have really different views on the work. I really enjoy that part of these conversations and I hope that uh, you do as well. When I try to imagine what design and architecture firms, which ones will be of note, shall we say, and studied in decades to come, I, I consider X10 architecture to be one of those. Swiss roots, clean lines, minimal and modern, but not stark. I like their work so much because I love LA and have always admired work that allows itself to be noticed, yet complements the beauty of Southern California. They do that. Before we hear from Scott and get into this episode of the podcast, I want to thank you for downloading and subscribing to Convo by Design. Did you know that there are other ways to get the show? Let's say you're in the car driving, you don't want to look at your phone. So ask your smart device to get it for you. You can say, hey, Google, play Convo by Design. Hey, Siri. Play Convo by Design. We're available through basically every smart device or available, not on, yeah, through every smart device and on just about every podcast platform. So you can catch us anywhere and it's super easy. Okay, this is X10 Architecture's Scott Utterstrom. Convo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond, our sponsor, known in Southern California for providing amazing service and world-class products like those from Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove. Here you have a company that is laser-focused on helping homeowners be their very best in the kitchen with refrigeration that provides proper food preservation, ovens and ranges that provide precision in food preparation, and Cove dishwashers that can handle any mess. Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove appliances are stunning to look at, in too many sizes and styles to list here, but it's also what's on the inside. The tech inside these appliances has been tested, crafted, and worked to razor-sharp precision, allowing for exactly what your clients want, precise and predictable results in the kitchen. That's what you get with Sub-Zero, Wolf, and Cove, and you will find the full line of each at all three Southern California Snyder Diamond locations. You can also see the newly designed living kitchen in the Santa Monica and Pasadena showrooms. And it, it is funny, too, because there was no, there was no plan uh, from a publication standpoint. So the fact that we're meeting when Monica's episode came out, like on the same day, purely, ser purely coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I loved my conversation with Monica. 
so you've been a partner since 2007 at X10. How did you guys meet? So I've been um, working at X10 since 2007, and I've been a principal at X10 since 2015. Okay, all right, all right. And actually, we ended up, we met through a mutual acquaintance, uh, somebody that I worked with at a previous office, mm -hmm. and um, met Austin and Monica after grad school. Okay, um, for okay. me. So after I finished up UCLA, okay. then I went and worked for X10, so been there for over 12 years now. Yeah, and you've seen a lot of changes. Yeah. Um, yes. Before that, so are you originally, did you grow up in Portland? Yeah, just outside of Portland. Greatest part of the country in the world. I went to, um, I went to Washington State. So being from LA, going to Washington State University, driving back and forth mm -hmm. so many times, I really got a chance to explore the Northwest. It's, in my opinion, it is the greatest part of the country. I absolutely love that country. Why did you, why did you leave? For, for, for work? Um, well, I guess I really eventually, I, initially I left for school. So I've been in California uh, since undergrad. You were at San Luis Obispo? Yes, at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And then after that, uh, decided to move to LA really for work. I think a lot of interesting things were happening in LA and architecture at that time. So I moved down to LA, um, worked with a firm called AGPS Architecture, which is funny because they also have a Swiss connection. It's a married couple. And I think that really set, uh, I guess, set the direction, I think, for my career. I think that was a great place to start. It was a great kind of studio atmosphere and working with a lot of very talented people. Tell me about working in the, in the atmosphere, the environment, because you know, having spoken with, with Monica, I, I feel like I get her vibe and understanding that this, the studio is a very, it's a very inclusive place. It's not, it's not a massive studio. It's not, it's not about a lot of projects coming in and out the door. It's, it's, a, it's a boutique firm and, yeah. it, and it's about specialty. Yep. So you've been in that environment for long enough now. Has that has that changed you, or has has it adapted because of the the way you've directed it? Do you know what I mean? Um, like when someone when someone's with a firm for that long, it either changes them or they change it. It's just sort of how it works. Yeah, and I, and I think it's I think it's a little bit of both, um, and I think it probably started more me adapting a little bit more, which. Um, was, was a pretty easy thing to do, um, just because the culture, there was a great connection there. Um, but now I think also just as, as, as principal, it's really kind of Monica and me uh, making decisions about the direction of the firm and the culture. And, and I think we, you know, we like to keep it, and I wouldn't say small is the right word, but um, you know, we wanna keep it collaborative and uh, have a working relationship with all of our employees um, and really empower them to, you know, give as much to the projects as they, and be invested in the projects. Is small a bad word? No, I just say that because I, I don't, I don't think it's anything that we're saying we want to stay a small firm, you know, we want to, we, oh, wanna, interesting. we would, we would continue to grow with, you know, as long as the quality of the work is growing how is the how has the firm changed since you started there and i and i asked the question specifically because especially in design and architecture you're not designing something 
for next year's fall season. You're yeah. not designing something for five years from now. You're designing something with with a lifespan of a home, of yeah. a of a building of a structure. So you have to think in those terms. That doesn't that doesn't say that everybody does. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, your approach and sort of the 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 process and the progress of the firm. Um, how has it changed? Well, I, I mean, I think we've uh, I think we've grown a lot as uh, not only as a firm but as individuals, and um, our experience has grown. And so maybe our in design intentions haven't shifted that much, uh, but I think we've also become much savvier in, in how we carry that out, right? And that's just kind of like through work collaborating with other people and working with contractors and uh, learning all of the things that it takes to, to deliver a successful project. Do you think you've developed a, a style? Do you have a style? Uh, whew. I don't know if I'd say we have a, a style, but I think we, um, we like to keep our projects pretty clean and simple and with a, with a twist, with a playful twist. And so, you know, I think we're a little bit, you know, I always see our firm as a little bit outside of a lot of the work that's happening in LA. Um, or maybe adjacent is a better word. Um, but I think that's also the, the Swiss background from Monica and, uh, really kind of creating a rigorous order to each project. How does that work? It being adjacent, (laughs) adjacent. Yeah. What is it? What does that mean? How does that work? Um, I think it's more just that like, we've kind of got, you know, it's like we've got one foot in LA and one foot maybe in Switzerland and Europe in terms of the work that, that we're looking at and interested in. So, well, and it's interesting because when I started doing the podcast, I remember I would always ask about style and do you have a style? Do you have a signature style? And to be honest with you, it was, it was naive in because I was asking it the way I was asking it it was a naive question it really was mm-hmm. I, I, I started this because I'm a fan of architecture and design I absolutely love architecture and design but asking that question the way I did it it was naive it was it was pedestrian mm-hmm. right but mm-hmm. I ask the question now because I've learned a few things I used to think that it was that there was the connotation was that there was something negative by a creative when you ask them, do you have a signature style in in the way that um, one might ask an actor or an actress if there's, you know, if they can play only one certain type of role. Yeah. You know what I mean? If they become typecast. Yeah. But then I've kind of learned and I understand a little bit more. And I don't think it's not a bad thing to have a signature style if one can then take that style and adjust and change it and tweak it and run adjacent yeah. to, you know, or, or counter to what's being done at the time, knowing that you're designing something for the long term. And I think that that's really interesting too. It's interesting to me to have, you know, a firm in architecture that's, that's really groundbreaking. You're doing a lot of really remarkable things. You're from Portland. Monica's from from Switzerland. You know, it's not LA based. I find that really interesting. Does that is that is that unique or or is it just me? 
I guess I would say it's not it's not unique to LA just because I feel like uh, LA is full of of outsiders. But um, fair enough. Uh, and and I also would say maybe that's not quite unique to architecture, just because I think you end up getting attracted to cities because that's where a lot of the work is. So you have people from multiple areas. Now I would say the unique of kind of you know Monica's European background and my Pacific Northwest background, you know, is kind of a unique combination. Um, and I think that influences the work. What do you What do you like designing? If If you had a, if, and I ask the question because it's so funny. I, I'm down in the South Bay, mm-hmm. and walking around my neighborhood, it's it's the it's the mod Cape Cod everywhere. Everything that's going up now is, yeah. is that mod Cape Cod, and I don't hate it. I, I'm I don't like it as much as I do when I first saw it. Yeah, and remaining new and remaining relevant. And creating work that is that is that is germane to the client and relevant to the time and has a lifespan for the future that's not easy to do yeah that's not easy yeah. to do and yeah this is where the work is so you get you get jobs based on the other work that you've done how do you maintain that fresh playful perspective uh, with each with each new project yeah um, well I think especially with a lot of the, the custom residences that we do, um, they all they are all very unique in that it's a unique site we're dealing with. It's a unique client that we're dealing with. And we, we really just try to play up those differences. So the more that the site can influence the project and the more that the client, you know, and their, maybe their lifestyle, you know, and how they live can influence the project, um, these are things feeding into you know the way that we already work so i think that's kind of the way that we make sure that we keep it fresh do you do you have a do you have a type that you like to build do you like residential do you like commercial what do you what do you enjoy and why um i we do a lot of residential work okay i'm gonna stop i'm gonna gonna stop i'm gonna stop you right there it's really interesting to me yeah i'm asking you and you're responding with we I find that interesting. <laughs> okay. Why, why is that? Is that because you, is the desire there to remain part of the firm as opposed to an individual? Or because you don't want to be a part of the individual when you're talking about the work I as think a firm? That's, I think, I think it, it's part that it's the firm is doing the work, right? And I'm, and I'm a part of that, and me and Monica are kind of the main parts of it. So um, I guess I'm answering answering you know as our as our firm uh me personally you know i think i've always loved working on houses just because it's so intimate um and you can really get down to kind of the details of the project in a way that you can't with some larger projects um but i think that being said i uh i think the major component that's missing from that is kind of the public interaction component how do you mean uh just dealing with a, a larger set of users for the project and something that isn't con- catered to one family or one person necessarily, but to a city that is, is using that building or that space. And I think that would be very interesting to do. Back to the partnership for a second, because I re- there's, I've, I've encountered two distinct types of personalities okay. and, then, and then all kinds of variables and variations throughout. One is the rock star designer architect who puts themselves in front which isn't necessarily a problem 
It's not a bad thing in and of itself. Here's what I do. Here's what I like. Here's what I like to build. Because at the end of the day, you are a creative. You are a creative individual. You are creating something. And so as the creator of it, you know, putting oneself in front of it, there's nothing wrong with that. The other side of it is the, here's what we do. Here's what we are. Here's what we stand for. And it's really putting the firm in front. And then there are certain variables or variations all, all throughout. It's really interesting because in my conversation with both you and Monica, you both put the firm first before your own work individually. And I do find that unique. I do find that interesting because it, it, it just sort of shows that, that you are both completely on the same page with where you want, you want the firm to be in front. But I also find it interesting because you chose, you chose a career where you are, I mean, you look at someone like, you look at someone like Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. I'm reading a book right now about, about his work and his life. There was no shortage of opinions, both about architecture yeah. or about anything else that you might ask him about. Mm-hmm. Right? That, you don't seem to have, you don't have that same vibe as, as, a, as a creator where you're putting yourself in, in front of the work. And I wonder, does that help you as someone who's trying to move an entire firm forward. Do you, does that make sense? Y- yes. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, it's a good question. I think that the way that, uh, I'm not surprised to hear that, you know, Monica answered it the same way, um, just because I think we've always placed the work first, uh, you know, before like whatever independent I guess ideas or motivations that we have but it's also that you know it's been it's a it is a collaborative thing and so you know we're the drivers we're driving it but we also have plenty of people in our office who are all very talented designers who are all contributing to it and you know it's not always my idea it's not always Monica's idea it's the best idea and that's what wins so that's I think the emphasis where we really try to place it on on the work and and the ideas and the work. So tell me about the operations of the firm. And I find it interesting too, one of the things that I absolutely love about the design and architecture community here in LA, I can't speak to it elsewhere because I'm here and I know it intimately here. This is a very welcoming community. There is a lot of mentorship. There is a lot of nurturing new designers and new talent that they come in when they come in and that they bring new talent in into the fold and teach them the way that they want they want to teach them and they they help them flourish and then they set them out to hang their own shingle yeah at some point it's it's kind of counterintuitive but it also strengthens the industry is have you noticed that and is that something that you guys strive to do as well uh it I would think that actually comes uh, mostly from the fact that a lot of the uh, a lot of the strong architects or designers in the industry um, are also spent many many years teaching, and so it's kind of they're you know helping these students grow, and once they move into their office, you you get a little bit of that as well, right? You're mentoring these these people, and you want to see them kind of succeed and do as good as they can, and. Uh, and then on the other side of it, you know, it, it's less about mentoring and making sure that the work is as good as it can be. 
So, do you and Monica split duties? Do you have certain responsibilities, or do you both handle everything together? I'm I'm asking the question because I'm curious about the brand. I'm curious about the practice. I'm curious yeah. about how how you two work together to to drive the organization forward. Yeah, I always say, and and this is just even in talking to clients. Um, me and Monica are involved in the project. Every project, both start to finish, um, so we have equal say and we don't split it up and this is hers and this is my project. Uh, she's generally a little bit more on the front end and I'm a little bit more on the back end um, with the CDs and, and, and during construction, but we're both constantly giving input on those things. So when you know most of the decisions happen in team meetings, and both of us are there and that's a discussion and we're both kind of guiding the evolution of the project. Talk to me about the state of Southern California architecture. What do you see now compared to when you came in and what direction do you see it going? Not, not, just, not just in your own practice, but, but the whole thing in general because LA has changed, Southern California has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's very interesting because me, you know, moving down to L.A., I think you had a lot of strong figures. You had Frank Gehry, you had Morphosis, um, and a lot of this. I, I think when you step back and you look at how the rest of the world is viewing this, it's uh, maybe a little bit more formally driven architecture than in other areas. Um, and I think that's something that I see changing uh, not only in LA, but maybe elsewhere throughout the throughout the country and throughout the world as well. How do you mean? Um, I think that the work is. I don't feel like a consistent movement in LA per se. I feel like firms are branching off and doing their own things more than they were where it seemed to be more of a kind of unified LA movement before do you think do you think LA do you think LA is part of a movement now I, and I it's really interesting I love this conversation because you'll find people who think LA is becoming homogenous and you'll find people who think that LA is is still just remarkably scattered and and <laughs> different yeah. no matter where you go yeah and it's interesting to me that people can have such divergent views over the same geographic space. Yeah, and, and I still think LA is a, is a hotbed for kind of creativity and experimental architecture. Um, I don't see that changing, you know? So you, I think you don't? That is, no. And even as the city, you know, I don't know if you would say LA is homogenizing, but I think it is, it is changing. Um, but I still think uh, overall, you're getting a lot of varied work, uh, very creative work. See, it's so funny, though, because I grew up here. And so, you know, I remember in the 70s where the Brady Bunch houses were popping up everywhere mm -hmm. with, the, with the white rocks on the ceilings, on the roofs, right? And I remember in the 80s when Mediterranean or Southern California Mediterranean mm -hmm. was so popular. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I get it. Um, we, we generally run in streaks, right? So like the, the mod Cape Cods that I mentioned, or modern, I think modern is, is just, modern's having a day. Yeah. 
it's definitely having a day. Yeah. Um, you know, whether, whether and how, modern will always be popular. It will always last. It's just what, vari- what, what variable, you know, what, what different style of modern is yeah. going to be popular at the time. Yes, and, and I think that's less about, you know, not necessarily kind of trying to replicate, you know, modernism or mid-century modernism, right? The same way that we'd say you shouldn't really try to replicate a, a Cape Cod or, or mission style. Um, but I think uh, maybe a lot of the modern work that's happening now is, is you know, kind of broadening its, uh, loosening its its confines a little bit and freeing itself up to, you know, explore, explore different avenues. I, I absolutely think that's true. I think that, you know, Southern California was the home, the true home of experimental indoor outdoor living. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is, is experimental. You know, I, it's funny. I remember seeing, and I've seen recently some design where you will have a full, a full bath, out outside yeah 10 years ago nobody would would imagine that 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 would be something popular that people might actually want like like for a retail market yeah like maybe maybe experimental maybe one person two per one off kind of thing yeah but not as a lifestyle choice yeah but it's a thing now um i think we're we're more open to new ideas here and I wonder how does that how does that affect you? How does that affect the practice? How does that affect the design? And you had mentioned, you know, weaving in some playful elements. Does does that kind of experimental attitude help in that process? Y- yes, yeah. And I think a lot of the times, um, I don't want to say it's 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 client driven, but it's also it's something that you needed a specific type of client to achieve. So if your client is very open to these, you know, ideas, then it's easier to kind of push them, not push them through, but, um, yeah, get them into your projects. And so I think that's also one of the reasons what attracts LA to architects. Um, and I think the same thing that some of the people are attracted to LA that move here because of that creativity and they end up, uh, you know, allowing, allowing the architects to, to give their full into each project. If you could prognosticate a little bit as to Southern California and, and what the architecture movement looks like in the next 10 to 15 years, what direction do you think we're going? What direction do you want it to go? Um, I don't I don't know if I would say stylistically where I think or know it's going, but I think where um, it's going is to densify. I think you're going to see density increase uh throughout LA um, so I would say buildings will be getting taller um, probably t- tighter <laughs> well and that's really interesting because that ju- city planners would pull, are pull, I'm sure pulling their hair out trying to figure out how to manage this because you know one thing is not it, it's not siloed right yeah. everything's connected and you talk about density, absolutely. So the first thing that goes are the infill projects, right? Yeah. So you look around and where where is where can we infill? Where is the opportunity there? Then it's the teardowns and starting over in certain places to build better. Yeah. But let's be honest, when you have the kind of terrain that we have here and the way that, you know, LA is not one city, it's it's 
40 some mm, odd yeah. different different boroughs yeah right and each each one has their own restrictions and their own guidelines anyone who's tried to drive around LA we always laugh at the traffic right but anyone who's tried to drive around LA recently certainly understands that traffic has changed yes and Waze is part of the problem Uber and Lyft are part of the problem the scooters that are flying around part of the issue issue as well but a lot of it is the way that the city has has grown the direction yeah as an architect do you feel any responsibility not that it's your fault but do you feel any responsibility for trying to be part of the solution yes um I, I do feel a responsibility to be part of the solution. You know, ultimately, it, it you know the effect that we have is is a little bit small. But you know, I mean, we're we're still uh, part of the group of people that are pushing the needle in one way or the other. Um, and I think it, traffic, which I, I see you know on a yearly basis, the increase in my in my commute, um, you know, it's not it's not going away, and there's no kind of uh, magic bullet for it you know i keep telling myself that the driverless car was going to solve all this but <laughs> not unless it flies <laughs> yeah that's probably not the case um i think i think density is you know i think density will not only kind of make uh, more public transportation kind of feasible um in la but also put more users in the infrastructure that we currently have so i've said this before i think that architects are, are are kind of like our futurists because you have to you have to look ahead to determine how things are going to be to figure out how you can build a structure not just for the now but like i said for for 10 15 20 50 years from now mm-hmm. i was walking through a house it gets confusing i don't know if it was early part of this year or late part of last year and it was it was a it was a concept spec and they built in a drone pad a human carrying drone pad yeah um the the quadcopter you know it fit four people and it's not available now but the idea was that you know in in a few years it's it's structurally engineered to have to have a, a a human carrying drone land and take off from this one location there are no overhead wires there are no overhead trees it's in a it's in an open space that concept is just terrifying (laughs) by the same token if you would have said to me 10 15 years ago you know that driverless cars are are reality that um basically people you know la's car culture that people would turn their cars into cabs that um you could rent bikes and, and motorized scooters and ride them on the street and the sidewalk as, as you wish and pay by the minute. That just didn't, it, it seemed like a foreign concept. It didn't, those concepts didn't seem like something that would actually fly, fly, no pun intended. Yeah. Right? It's real. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think. Yeah. And we have our, like, we have clients, uh, even though LA is a car culture, you know, I'm kind of surprised at the amount of our clients that really are looking, you know, oh, well, you know, four or five years in the future, are we going to have a car? Do we need a garage? And they're kind of happy to give it up, right? They're just, they'd rather have the space to be able to use it for something else. So, I mean, that's kind of one way just in, in terms of looking 
to the future and how that can affect these projects. And I'm glad you said that because I'm curious, as, as you do your work, you know, if, if we were talking about, you know, if you and I were talking 10 years ago about the formal living mm-hmm. and formal dining based on the size of a house, and you're saying, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't really think there's much of a future in, yeah. new, in new builds or, or remodels for, for adding in a formal living or a formal dining. Again, based on the size, if we're, if we're talking about a, a 3,000 square foot house, maybe if you're talking about a 10,000 square foot house, yeah, probably more likely yeah. to put in yeah. spaces like that. Not, ne- not necessarily, but yeah. perhaps. Isn't it interesting though? And, and what does that do for you and the thought process for you personally and for the firm as you start to think, you know what, don't need a formal living don't need a formal dining. More people are working in their homes, so adding workplace infrastructure yeah. is possibly more important. Maybe we don't need cars so much because we're not commuting as much, so what can I do with that garage space? And maybe two is too much, but one space is more important. It's almost like we're going, we're, you're going fully retro in certain areas and forward in the other. How do you plan for that? <laughs> well, it's funny because I think this conversation has kind of started off with technology, right? And technology is constantly changing and we're having to adapt that in our projects however the biggest changes in design you know are not really technology based right it's um it's the way in which people are living right and i think you brought up a good example just of an outdoor bathroom right it's ways that we can kind of increase the connectivity to the outdoors and make you know the outdoor space is primary and usable as the indoor space and i think also with a lot of the older styles it's about opening up kind of these um creating more flexible open space that it, you know is less broken up and less confining and just bringing more daylight in and these are things you know this isn't about technology it's just about better design it is about better design but it's also what it's about is a willingness and an acceptance or a willingness to accept certain things. For example, you know, you take a European style bathroom scenario with one communal sink mm-hmm. and two water closets and a shower tub. So three components, but actually serves as two different bathrooms mm-hmm. in the same footprint. You know, I don't. I don't know that the American clientele is going to be as willing to accept something th- that radical. But you n- you never really know. So where does where do you get to experiment? You can't you can't build it in real time. Where does where, how do, what do you do with with regard to experimental architecture and how do you, how do you come up with new ideas and how do you test those out? Uh, well, I, I mean, in terms of testing testing things out I think you know a digital modeling uh, makes that much easier just because you're able to really uh, not only create the spaces but you know visualize them and thri- uh, fly through them um, much easier than you could previously but I think you know uh, the innovation and experimentation still it, it I don't think it just happens in one area. You know, there's different parts of each project that kind of jump out and, and present themselves almost as unique opportunities. So, uh, I mean, I would think, you know, I, uh, w- one small example was we don't really have a, a piano in all of our p- 
projects and all of a sudden in one project that kind of became this key piece where we had created this great space first and then the client was asking us like oh well where can I put I just picked up this piano where can I put this and it 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 kind of fit perfectly right so I think each pro the creative creativity comes in different areas for each project do you have a favorite project either one that you've worked on one that you've designed or one that you've seen um well, I'd have to say pro I think my favorite project is probably the Salk Institute. Um, so, why Lucon? Uh, I think the way, you know, the way that he set the buildings and framed the view with those buildings, uh, and I think kind of the honesty that he brought to the materiality of the building and the organization that he used, you know, it was really uh, kind of hitting perfect near perfection on each level um but i think he's one of the architects that i was first drawn to that have really just kind of continually come back to and back to over the years that's really interesting view and space i think those are maybe those are those are easy things to fall in love with but i remember having a similar conversation with um with monica about this that was it the naka naka house naka house very similar mm -hmm. in the view and the topography pretty much defined what the space was going to be. Yeah. Is that, is that accurate? Y yes. Yeah. And no. And, and I, I think I would say, <laughs> well, we're also, we're dealing with, we're dealing with an existing house. Right. So as much, that was really, you know, that was almost more of a constraint than the topography. Was it? Um, cause it was something that was already there. So, uh, you know, I think that's my, one of my personal favorites, um, that our firm has worked on. And, you know, I think what I love about it is the, this kind of minimal insertion, you know, we're not really expanding the floor area, we're adding a deck. Uh, and by adding a deck, we completely transform the whole, you know, the whole house. Isn't that interesting? It's an interesting idea, isn't it? That, that it's not a wholesale replacement. It's not a wholesale change. Sometimes it's, it's and this was no small feat, but sometimes changing something like that can turn the whole place around into something completely different. And I think that's what that's what our work is trying to do. In that, uh, you know, I always think of it as like a, cer a certain amount of design efficiency. It's not necessarily being the most efficient. It's getting the most with the smallest move. In a way. And it's funny because you would think that that's an easy thing to do. But it's not. That's the hardest. <laughs> it is. Why is that? Um, I don't know because I think it, it. It sometimes it's tough. You're kind of unlocking a, a potential that you didn't know really existed. So instead of maybe trying to focus on solving two different problems, you're kind of solving a, a third that you didn't know was there. You know, until you found the solution. Is there a problem with the current state of architecture that you would like, or the way that we live that you would like to solve? Um, that I would like to solve. Uh, I think, I think architecture or at least housing will need to go through, uh, kind of a, a major adjustment to keep up with, with not only technology, but, um, 
giving people a product in a way that that they can afford and that you know that fits their lifestyles so i think this is still this is kind of a long movement for some type of prefabricated housing that makes sense for uh, a larger number of people okay so totally get it love that um what i mean is and and i think you you kind of nailed it for me was post world war ii Mm -hmm. housing crisis southern california not enough housing stock yeah so wallace neff wallace neff yeah luxury architect wallace neff designs the bubble house mm-hmm. where the last one remaining is in pasadena which is the one he died in i think yeah basically it's an upside down swimming pool mm-hmm. in essence i mean that's what it is it's it's metal fortified yeah. gunite structure um and you you build in the walls super easy it's really interesting because he, you know his idea was we're going to sell millions of these i think they wound up selling 250,000 yeah. at its you know at its peak that was the max number that i that were ever sold there's one left um clearly that idea didn't work but one could also look back at that as as the model for downsized and track homes you know, tracked homes mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Southern California. Mm-hmm. One could look at that as the as the model for building. Hey, you know what? Homes don't need to be that big for everybody. Not everybody wants that. Yeah. So here's here's a tracked idea where you can just three or four different models, build them one after the other. That works. So that particular idea wasn't necessarily the solution. I think there's I think there's a couple things that need to happen. One. Uh, it needs to have a scale to it to make it work, right? And that's, I think you can see that in, in cars and computers and everything else. The other, I think, is you really need a, a desire and acceptance from the public that they, you know, are open to this. And so, I mean, I think the Wallace Neff one is a good, good example. That was probably, there probably just weren't that many people at that time that were open to, to living in the bubble house. You know, which is probably a big reason why it didn't really take off. You and know, I think that's cha- I mean, I think that's changing not to the bubble house, but just in into being open to different ways of living. Isn't it interesting too? Timing and geography. Mm-hmm. So who knows if that would have been any more successful if instead of Pasadena, arguably one of the stuffiest. Yeah, communities yeah, in yeah. which to try something new. Yeah. That, they're not. They're not open to trying something new. It's like doing it in Montecito or Santa Barbara. It's like mm-hmm. maybe this isn't the place where you want to try experimental ideas. If 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 a place like that had gone into into Silver Lake, you yeah. know, or had gone some maybe in the Valley. Everything everything experimental starts in the Valley, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, you know, and and maybe if it had come five or ten years later maybe it would have gained a little more popular but it's interesting isn't it timing and geography yeah and 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 still i you know if you ask me i still don't know why a model hasn't taken hold or there hasn't been more progress why don't we live in geodesic domes yeah it's so funny because I, I love saying that to architects. <laughs> I love. I just want you to know. It's, it's in sorry, the reaction. I, I, I really couldn't help myself. I I love saying that to architects and seeing the look I get back. It's like really to just say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's funny. What's funny, right, is because 
I, to be honest, I don't know too many architects that would that would agree with you. Why doesn't everybody live in a geodesic dome? Yeah. I think it, it also is like, that's something that, you know, it's creating this very efficient structure, but in a way you're kind of stripping the creativity out of it. Completely, out of it, right? completely. It's just model for everyone. Go live in a yurt. And I think that's what's great, especially now with the new kind of uh, advancements in, in fabrication, it allows things to be customizable and, you know, fabricated at a much higher level. It's so you don't have to give up. You don't have to give up the creativity and customization. What do you think about that, though? It's funny, too, because when you talk about prefabrication mm-hmm. and fabricated homes, again, with designers and architects, that's not a conversation that usually goes well. Some architects, you know, depending on the type of, of prefabrication, you know what I mean? Like some architects have done masterful work with shipping containers. Yep. But I don't think anyone's going to necessarily build their practice on shipping container style homes. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It almost yeah. seems it almost it almost seems like a bastardization of the art form that is architecture. Does it make yeah. sense? Yeah, and at a certain scale, there's, there's really no reason why you should be limited to a shipping container format. It's it's true, but by the same token, using that plug-and-play, building block, one could be extremely creative with it. Mm -hmm. And as a building material, it it, it almost solves so many problems, especially here in Southern California. Between, between, you know, earthquakes, between, you know, and the way the weather is, with with, um, raw materials, it solves a lot of ills. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I guess, and it's interesting too, because I love having the the conversation with architects about making architecture easier, and that's not something you guys generally like. <laughs> yeah, no, we make things more difficult. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> uh, well, uh, it's probably uh, a little sadom- sadomasochism <laughs> there, you know. <laughs> It's not. It's not good if you're not experiencing some pain in it. No. Okay. Um, well, but it begs the question. Do Do you think that way as an architect? Do you try to figure out how to make it easier, or are you trying? I think all of our projects. We're trying to trying to make it easier. We're trying to make it you know simpler. Um, strip away more. You know, get by with less. I think that's uh, you know a theme throughout our work um which is just kind of like constantly distilling the distilling the architecture um but i wouldn't say that's an easy process you know the process isn't easier no and and now you have to yeah you kind of don't have a choice for the for the industry to continue to develop and grow you 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 have to figure out how to how to boil it down to its finest essence and Mm -hmm. then and then make that work harder yeah right Mm -hmm. Do you have a dream project? Is there a project that is, I hate to call it the bucket list because it's so trite, right? But is there a project that you would just, be it an existing project that you would love the chance to reimagine or something that you'd like to build from the ground up? Um, you know, I think that the, the go-to, you know, and I believe Monica said the same thing would be the library. I think that's a, a great public space 
um, to do. That's and, interesting. And I think it's also, I mean, it's been done several times, but it's also still in a constant, it's in, in a state of flux that, um, you know, it's still changing. Um, I'm still, you know, I still love books. I haven't replaced them with a Kindle yet. Uh, I don't think that's going away totally anytime soon, but, um, you know, obviously there's definitely changing, changing to come. What's the legacy? What's the desired legacy for X10? What would you, what would you like this firm to be remembered for in 50 years from now? Um, Well, I guess this sounds kind of boring, but I would just want to be known for good work. You know, if we can continue to do good work, uh, execute it at a high level. Um, I don't know if that's as much a legacy, but that's kind of why, you know, what gets me up in the morning. Okay. All right. All right. I'll, I'll take Fair enough. Um, and I'll be looking out because I, I hope you guys get your library. I want you to get the library now. We're on a mission to get you guys the library that you want because <laughs> right. I, I am a huge fan of libraries as well mm-hmm. I think that um, people don't collect books the way that they used to I had um, uh, Dan Whitmore from Whitmore Rare Books in Pasadena and we were talking about mm-hmm. you know first editions like the, the oh, super yeah, collectible yeah, yeah. god that's such a cool world of you know the collectible books where you're holding something in your hand it's like this is the last book that looks like that that's library yep. worthy right that's collectible that's collection by the same token you may have a book that is dog-eared and ripped and written in and marked up but you just you love the book you love the story so you're not going to go buy 22 copies of uh of uh, catcher in the rye yeah right yeah but you have the book yeah. that you love reading over and over and over again and so it, it remain it, it should be in your library yeah but yeah. but it, so i understand the importance i love them as well and i and i hope you guys get your library all right Thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you. This is great. All right. That is a wrap on this episode of Convo by Design, recorded live in the Living Kitchen studio, featuring architect Scott Utterstrom. Thank you for the time, Scott. Greatly appreciated. And thank you for listening, downloading, subscribing, emailing, and uh, coming out to our events. Without you, there is no Convo by Design. So please follow the podcast on Instagram, Convo by Design with an X, and make sure you subscribe everywhere you find your favorite podcast. Or as we mentioned before, just say, hey, Google, play Convo by Design. That way you can hear us wherever you go. Thanks for listening. And until next week, keep creating. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendome Furniture. Their design culture is the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vondam pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest. Vondam products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted modern durable molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique. They beg to be enjoyed. Have you seen them featured in our videos? Check out our YouTube channel and see this for yourself. You can also find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in Los Angeles, or online at vondom.com. 